Number one, Jesus is the Messiah and worthy of our attention. Verse 2 announces clearly exactly whom this story is about. It says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. It's about a newborn child destined to be the king of the Jews. Now, in itself, that wouldn't be a very great thing. I mean, somewhere in America today, there are probably three or four kids under the age of 18 who are going to be the president of the United States someday. But nobody really cares about this or sets out to find them or sets out to honor them. But verse 4 makes clear what the Magi really meant by king of the Jews. It says, assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, meaning King Herod, inquired of them where the Christ, the Messiah, was to be born. See, Herod had been called king of the Jews by the Senate in Rome for almost 40 years. But no one called him Messiah. Messiah means the long-awaited, God-anointed ruler who would overcome all other rule, who would bring in the end of history, establish the kingdom of God, never die or lose his reign. That's for whom the wise men were searching. So let's stop here for a moment and think about these guys. I'm going to share something with you. Here's, here's what we know about the wise men. All right, this might take a while. Nothing. Aside from the fact that they came from the east, we don't know anything about them. It's obvious that they were astrologers. I mean, we can surmise some things from Scripture. But don't think like kooky stargazing club. Their title indicates that they were probably part of the priestly ruling tribe from the east. Throughout the history of that time, in every empire, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, even during the Roman area and the Parthians, the Parthians, the Magi are present in the royal courts and have great political power. So, how did they put this all together? I mean, the star, a king... And all that kind of stuff. Well, the short answer is that God revealed it to them. But let's kind of take this out a little further. If you remember, Babylon or Persia is where many of the children of Israel, Israel had been taken into exile. And we know from the book of Daniel that some of the greatest men of God were kept among the wise men. People like Daniel, the guy in the lion's den. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those three guys that got thrown in the fiery furnace. They were kept among the wise men of that empire. And there's no doubt that they shared the writings of Moses and the prophets with them. And those writings are full of prophecies about the Messiah. So we can assume that they they heard this or they read this. And they paid attention. See, they were, they were astrologers. They searched the skies. They looked at the stars. And one night, there it was. You figure the guy's sitting there, maybe on his roof, looking, and there's a star. There it is. Hey, Frank! 
Frank, look, it's here. We need to go. Go get your wife and your family. We're going. They were looking for this because they were paying attention. They may not have understood completely what it meant, but they were searching. Now, there's a difference between knowing about something and paying attention to it. Let me give you an example right from this text. Look at verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. See, this verse tells us that Herod was Herod, Herod, sorry. <laughs> Herod was troubled. I'm sure he was. Herod was troubled upon hearing this. To say that he was troubled was, was really an understatement, though. This word, the word here for troubled literally means in turmoil or terrified. Herod is threatened by the announcement of one who would supposedly usurp his reign. So he's pretty, he's pretty shaken up by this. And who, who does he gather? Who does he turn to? He calls for the chief priests and the scribes, the experts on the law, the experts on the prophets. Herod called the best of the best at that time in his mind. They come to him and he's like, where is this king? Where, where's this Messiah supposed to be born? You know, and they don't need to go look it up. They don't, they're not like, hey, you know what, let me get on Logos and see. Or let me log into Bible Gateway. Is there Wi-Fi in here? They don't need to do that. They know. They say Bethlehem. Bethlehem of Judea is where he's going to be born. In fact, they even quote from the prophet Micah. Look at verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. So they knew where he was supposed to be born, and they told Herod. Here's what's astonishing about this, about this whole part of this story. is, I mean, you look at these guys from the east, these guys that, that we know so little about. They're not Jewish, but they've probably heard about this prophecy through the exiles that were, were, were there. They, these guys are driven to Jerusalem, and then they're driven to Bethlehem to worship this newborn king. But what about these experts in the law? After they realized this, what did they do? Did they, did they run and pack up their stuff and, and head the five or six miles down the road to, to Bethlehem? They were unmoved. They didn't do anything. They had the knowledge, but they didn't pay any attention to it. They just didn't care. That's unbelievable, isn't it? Listen, we can criticize these scribes and priests all we want, but how often do we do the same thing? I mean, we have the completed, fully revealed word of God in front of us, and how often do we not pay attention? How often are we unmoved by the word of God? It's not just about knowledge. It's about paying attention to it. 
the spiritual state of the priests and scribes is a sobering reminder that mere knowledge of the scriptures is not enough. In fact, the indifference and apathy toward Jesus would soon develop into outright opposition. And this opposition would lead them to have Jesus killed. The next time we see the king of the Jews label ascribed to Jesus in Matthew's gospel is when he is beaten and mocked before his crucifixion. It's a dangerous thing to know the word and fail to pay attention to it. That's really part of the struggle this time of year. It's not about making sure that the decorations are up and the gifts are wrapped and the cards are mailed, even though the world would tell you that's what we're supposed to be doing. The fight is to pay attention to the incarnation in such a way that our hearts are inflamed with the reality of what we're celebrating, of who we're celebrating. It's past knowledge. It's the fight to be moved by him. It's the fight to be ignited by him. Jesus is worthy of our attention. Number two, Jesus is to be worshipped by all the nations. He's to be worshipped by all the nations. Each of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, while they tell the same story, they each have an intended audience. John wrote with a Jewish Gentile audience in mind, basically to everyone. Luke wrote to a Greek audience. Mark to a Roman audience. But Matthew's intended audience is the Jews. And his purpose is to show the Jews that Jesus was the promised Messiah and the King. But interestingly, the first people who come to worship Jesus in Matthew are not Jews but pagan wise men. That's no accident. Matthew's last words in his gospel are the Great Commission. Go into all the nations and preach the gospel. So Matthew bookends his gospel with a focus on the nations. He begins his gospel by showing the nations coming to see the Messiah. He ends it by telling us to go and tell them about the Messiah. The core of the gospel message is that Jesus has come for the nations. See, Jesus was not a Jewish savior, and he's not an American savior. He's the only savior. There is no hope for forgiveness of sins in healing from the curse apart from him. And our task is not complete until people from every nation have come to worship him. So you really can't read this story without reflecting on the fact that there are still over 6,000 unreached people groups in this world. An unreached people group is a, is a group of people who do not know Christ, who have not had the, the gospel of Christ brought to them and shared with them. 1.48 billion people have no access to the gospel at all. 
over 3 billion have little access to it. Our job is to go and share the gospel with them. There are still wise men in every nation, some of them still searching the stars, and we have to go tell them. Matthew begins his gospel by saying to the nations, come and see. And he ends the gospel by telling us, go and tell. Number three, God uses the universe to make Jesus known and worshipped. He uses the universe to make Jesus known and worshipped. Matthew stamps his Christmas story with evidence of God's absolute control over everything. I mean, think about Mary and Joseph and their trip to Bethlehem. Why did they have to go there? Caesar Augustus had decreed that everyone must register in their hometown. And where was it prophesied that the Messiah would be born? In Bethlehem, right? Couldn't God have just whispered to Joseph to take a trip to Bethlehem? He could have. But instead... He moved Rome to do a census of the whole world. This is Matthew's way of showing you that that God has no problem wielding an entire empire to accomplish the fulfillment of a prophecy. I mean, here in Matthew 2, he's showing us that God wants pagan magi to, to to be among the first to worship Jesus at his birthday party. So he commandeers the constellation to bring them there. Over and over, the Bible baffles our curiosity about just how certain things happened. How did this star get the Magi from the east to Jerusalem? It doesn't say that it led them or it went before them. It only says that they saw a star in the east and came to Jerusalem. And how did that star go before them? in that little five-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? How did the star stand over the place where the child was? Well, the answer is we don't know. People have tried to explain it in terms of conjunctions of planets or comets or supernovas or miraculous lights. But we just don't know. But we do know this. God controls the heavens. God speaks through donkeys. He manipulates governments. There is not one square inch of this entire universe over which God does not have complete control. How many of you have seen or read The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings? I'm sure a bunch of you have, right? Oh, okay. Yep, see? Yep, The Hobbit, that's right. It's a great movie, too. The book's better, but the movies are good. Well, J.R.R. Tolkien is the one who wrote these, and he's a very sincere Christian, and actually, he's the guy that led C.S. Lewis to Christ. Imagine having that on your spiritual resume, huh? But one of the reasons he has so many characters in his stories from nature, trees and eagles and, and, and what have you, was to show that God uses every element of the universe to accomplish his purposes and to show his glory. Listen, people 
people who are preoccupied with trying to explain miracles, like, like how the, the star worked and how the Red Sea split and how the manna fell and how Jonah survived the fish and how the moon turned to blood, are usually people who have a mentality for the marginal. You don't see them contemplating and meditating on the holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of man, the death of Christ, justification by faith alone, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the glory of Christ's return, and the final judgment. They're just lost in trying to explain something away rather than being lost in the wonder and glory of who God is. Now, what's, what is obvious about this star is this. It's, it's guiding the wise men to the Son of God to worship him. And there's only one person in biblical thinking that can be behind that intentionality in the stars. And that's God himself. So the point's clear. God is guiding people from other nations to Christ to worship him. And he's doing it by exerting global, even universal influence and power to get it done. Luke shows God influencing the entire Roman Empire. So the census comes at the exact time to get a virgin to Bethlehem to fulfill prophecy with her delivery. And Matthew shows God influencing the stars in the sky to get foreign magi to Bethlehem so they can worship the Son of God. That's God's design. He did it then and he's still doing it now. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says, In this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. His aim is that the nations, all the nations, worship his son. This is God's will for everyone in, in your family, in your neighborhood, at your work, the people that you pass on the streets. John 4.23 says, But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So at the beginning of Matthew, we have that come-see pattern. But at the end, the pattern is go-tell. The Magi came and saw. We are to go and tell. But, but what is not different is that the purpose of God is the gathering of the nations to worship his son. The magnifying of Christ is the reason the world exists and God uses the universe to make Jesus known and worshipped. Number four. Jesus is worthy of our lives and gifts. Jesus is worthy of our lives and our gifts. According to verse 10, these men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they responded in the only appropriate way. I mean, look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. These prominent men from the east, nobles of some nation, are bowing down and worshiping a baby, a child. You only bow down when you are in the presence of one far superior to you, as if to say, I am low and you are high. And look what they did next. 
they offered extravagant gifts. It says, then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. See, it was customary, particularly in the ancient East, to bring gifts when approaching a superior. And commentators on this passage, they vary as to whether the gifts have any significance or symbolism, but it's possible and probable that they did. There are possible connections as per John MacArthur. Gold. Throughout Scripture, gold is associated with royalty, kings and queens and princes. For example, when we see Solomon's wealth described in 1 Kings 10, gold is mentioned over 10 times in seven verses. Gold is associated with royalty, and it fits one of the main thrusts of Matthew's Gospels, which is to show Jesus' kingship. Matthew made clear that Jesus deserves royal honor in chapter 1. And now, Jesus is receiving it. Frankincense. Frankincense emphasized Jesus' deity. It was used in the Old Testament not only for royal processions, but also in offerings to God. It usually related to the worship and service of God. And myrrh. Myrrh emphasized Jesus' humanity. Myrrh was often used to prepare bodies for burial. In this gift, we see a foretaste of his impending death. Jesus was born to take the the payment and the penalty for our sins on himself. He was born to die so that we might have life. Now, just as the Magi bowed before Jesus and offered these priceless gifts, so too can we offer him gifts that are priceless. These are not gifts of worldly value, but rather gifts that have been given to us by God himself. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. These gifts have been given to you by God, and we're to steward them according to God's grace bestowed upon us in those gifts. And look at verse 11. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that, here's the goal, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Each of us is born with intrinsic gifts and abilities that that you possess long before you give your life to Christ. You don't need to be a Christian to be a great businessman or, or a great entrepreneur, right? You don't need to be a Christian to be a good teacher. You don't need to be a Christian to be a great artist. You don't need to be a Christian to be good at what you do. But upon giving your life to him, those intrinsic gifts are used and harnessed in a way that yields dividends for his kingdom. That push back what's dark in this world as the kingdom of God is more and more and more established. You've been gifted. We've all been gifted. But those gifts must be laid down at the feet of Jesus. 
lest you find your identity in the gift rather than in the gifter. The giver of the gift is always better than the gift, regardless of what that gift is. He is worthy of us laying down our gifts and seeing all that we have and all that we are as an opportunity to, to make much of him. Because as this text in First Peter closes, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He is worthy of our lives and our gifts. Matthew 2 gives us a a powerful picture of joyful worship and purpose. This text has the potential to change everything about how you think about your life, your job, your family, and the entire world around you. First of all, God has sent the Christ. I mean, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. The invitation at the beginning of Matthew is clear. Come and see the king. God invited the magi, and he invites you as well to see his king, to see his son, and to joyfully offer your life as a worshiper. See, the people of God should, regardless of personalities, they should smile and sing and praise. They should get excited, for the king has come. Worship involves joyful, affectionate praise. And like these powerful, influential men in Matthew 2, we should should be overwhelmed, bowing down in humble worship. We give to Christ the extravagant offering of our lives. Everything that we have and everything that we are, we lay it down before Jesus. He is the king. And as we see his royalty, his, his deity, and his humanity, we're compelled to shout and sing about his great worth. And as if that's not enough, after God sent the Christ, he sends the church. Much of what Matthew is setting up in these opening chapters will find resolution toward the end of his gospel. At the beginning, the message to the nations is clearly to come and see the king. But at the end, Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations. Joyfully offer your life as a worshiper, then passionately spend your life as a witness. Live for this purpose. Give your life and your gifts and your possessions and your plans and your dreams for this global purpose of God. The joyful praise of Christ among the people of the world. As Psalm 67, 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy.